Would you pray with me? Father, we're so, so in need of settling down and slowing down and being reminded of the depth of a love and how great the cost of the nearness we have to you. We thank you for that grace. We pray that you would give us yet another grace in these moments that we might see and grasp your word in ways that strengthen us and direct us. Um, So meet with us. Continue to meet with us, Father. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. I subscribe to a lot of magazines. Um, They are shorter than books, and they have pictures. So I like magazines, and uh, I have a number of them. And uh, one of the more theologically profound is this one. I'm a subscriber to Consumer Reports. And uh, in a world that has absolutely gone crazy with options, it helps me at certain points think about what, what's best. What's best. Um, for instance, you go to the grocery store, you will notice that there is an entire aisle, the length of the store, dedicated to cereal. Okay? Runs the entire length of the store. And recent Consumer Reports uh, ranked about 30 different kinds, 30 different kinds of cereal, a small sampling of what's on that aisle, I'm sure. And they found that about a third of the cereals, if, if you had a bowl of cereal, there is more sugar in that bowl of cereal than there is in a uh, daylight donut glazed. Okay. So it's good to know. Um, they, they raised a question recently, and this is on everyone's mind as Thanksgiving approaches. Is it worth... Getting the $8,000 oven to bake your turkey at Thanksgiving versus the paltry little $2,000 model. Okay, I know this is weighing heavily on your minds. <clears throat> the answer is, of course, it'll cook your turkey in two-thirds the time. Right? Now, honestly, if you even think for a moment that you should buy an $8,000 oven for your turkey, you, you probably need to see me for counseling after the service. All right? That's pretty much a no-brainer. But Consumer Reports is a lot of fun. It rates a lot of stuff, and you can learn some things. I often wondered what it would be like if they broadened their scope even more. Beyond cereal, beyond $8,000 ovens, and they ventured into the realm of the spiritual. And they began to rate the different spiritual options that are out there. Um, they would look at Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Christianity and all the New Age fluff that's out there. pardon me, and they would um, help us think about what's best. Now, I don't don't imagine that you'll ever see that happen. But even as an avid Consumer Reports reader, I'm okay with that because that does not need to happen. In a sense, that is precisely what the book of Hebrews does for us. It answers the question, is it worth it to follow Jesus alone and fully. And the book of Hebrews shouts the answer back to us. 
Yes, it is worth it to follow Christ wholly and fully and always. It is worth it. The book of Hebrews, if it does nothing else, it tells us with singular beauty that Jesus is supreme, that he is superior to all other ways. There is no, no rival to our King Jesus. Now it appears to us that the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews were struggling with this a bit. They were a people, we don't know much about them. There's no geography linked to them. There's no place. But we know that they suffered greatly and that evidently they were waffling in their faithfulness to Christ at certain points, tempted perhaps to slide back towards Judaism where there might be less suffering and less persecution where they were living. But nobody knows who wrote this book. Some of you think you know. You don't know. Okay? Nobody knows. It's a mystery. But what we know from the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is supreme. And I pray that it would be so in our thoughts and lives as we submit to the teaching of this book um, today and in the days to follow. So if you want to open up to the book of Hebrews, we'll, we'll kind of walk our way through that entire book today, Lord willing. In the first 10 or so chapters of Hebrews, all it does essentially is what I have just told you, and that is that it establishes the superiority of Jesus Christ to all other spiritual options. Friends, you need never be ashamed of being a follower of Christ in a conversation about spiritual things. He is supreme. That's how the book starts. It says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, many times, various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he starts out and he tells us, Jesus Christ is superior to all the prophets whom God had spoken through previously. And, you know, that's saying something. To be superior to the Old Testament prophets That's a big deal because they were amazing men through whom God did amazing things. You know, they could, in certain instances we read, they they could call down fire from heaven. I've never known anybody who could do that. Um, They could do that. Um, they, They spoke for God. They predicted the future. They called great kings to repentance. These were amazing, amazing men. But oh, how much superior to the prophets is Jesus, he says. Jesus is the creator of all things. Through Jesus, the Father made the universe. He made the prophets (laughs) through Jesus. 
He sustains. Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. The prophet's word was powerful and they could predict. But Jesus' word sustains everything in our world. And he's the bearer of forgiveness of sins. He makes purifications for sin. No prophet ever claimed to do such a thing. The author of Hebrews says, look, why settle for a prophet when you can have Jesus? He's not just superior to the prophets. He goes on in the next couple of verses. He's superior to the angels. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I've become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. A little farther down in verse 13, it says, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? You know, to be superior to the angels to the point where they will bow down and worship you, that's saying something. That's a big deal. Because angels are amazing creatures. In the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, they shut the mouths of lions. The book of Revelation, they take large millstone and throw it into the sea. And when people encountered them, they thought they were seeing God and were tempted to worship them. Nope, nobody had more angelic encounters, I don't think, than um, the Apostle John, which he records for us in the book of Revelation. And on a, on a number of occasions, he encounters these angelic beings, and they speak to him. Like in chapter 19, they say, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the angel adds, These are the true words of God. At this, John says, I fell at his feet to worship him. But the angel said to John, Don't do that, Okay? I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The angels worship Jesus. So superior to them is he. Now, just for helping you remember something I think about the book of Hebrews that I think is very, very helpful as we look at these first two chapters. The first chapter of Hebrews establishes the divinity of Jesus. You ever have a question yourself or you ever have a friend who's a little puzzled over the idea that Jesus is truly God? Read the first chapter of Hebrews. You heard some of the statements, the exact representation of his being. It presents Jesus as God. The second chapter of Hebrews presents him as man. And it shows how in his humanity, even in his humanity, he is superior to the angels. Um, Down in verse 14 of the second chapter of Hebrews, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might 
make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus, by his death, has destroyed the power of the devil and set us free from the fear of death. Only Jesus has been tempted in every way so that he can help us when we face our temptations. Even in his humanity, he's superior to the angels. Essentially, the writer's saying, look, why settle for angels when you can worship and follow Jesus? And he's not done establishing this kind of superiority complex for Jesus, right? He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels. In chapter 3, he says, he's superior to Moses. See, Moses was kind of the, the man. He was the guy to the Jews. He, he brought the law to them. He, you know, brought all those amazing deliverances out of the Exodus. You know, he did those miracles with a stick and parted the Red Sea. Moses was the guy. And so the writer of Hebrews says, look, holy brothers who share in our heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. This is a theme in the book of Hebrews. Fix your thoughts on Jesus the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. But Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than even Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. So Jesus is established as superior to Moses. It says in a sense here kind of covertly that Jesus even made Moses. He made the house. John Piper has a helpful illustration to think about this. He, he imagines an Olympic scene where there are a bunch of decathletes hanging around talking about who's the best decathlete. Okay? Jesus is one of the competitors. So they're having this conversation, and one of them says, I threw the javelin the farthest. I am the greatest. Another one says, no, 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 I threw the shot the farthest. I am the greatest. Another one says, I... I ran the sprint the fastest. Another one says, I ran the distances. Another one says, and they go on and on and on. Finally, they look over to Jesus, kind of off to the side, and they said, what about you? And he said, I made all of you. I am the greatest. Okay. He made Moses. He's superior to Moses. He made the prophets. He's superior to the prophets. He made the angels. Jesus is superior. He is the creator of the universe. Don't settle for a mere man, even a great man, when you can have Jesus. Don't hope in a candidate or in a pastor or a professor or an author. Worship Jesus. Follow Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Give your allegiance to Jesus. He's superior to your heroes as the builder is to the house and the potter is to the clay. Don't settle. For less than Jesus. Now the next big section of the book of Hebrews 
he establishes that Jesus is also superior to all the priests who've come before him. Flip over to chapter 7, down about verse 23. It says, there have been many of those priests. Many priests came in the Old Testament since death prevented them from continuing in office. So a priest would die and other priests would come onto the scene. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. One who's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. So Jesus is established as superior to all of the priests. See, our our great problem is not um, that our marriage is hard or that we've lost our job or that our IRA has evaporated thanks to the stock market. Um, It's not that we bought the wrong oven or the wrong cereal. Our great problem is that we have sinned and cannot have access to a radically holy God. How do we get access to our maker? How how can we enter his presence? And the biblical answer to that, in part, is framed this way. We need a priest. We need a priest who will go into the presence of God on our behalf and offer sacrifices for our sin before a holy God. In the Old Testament, the high priest would enter into a place called the Holy of Holies, the most the place most associated with the presence of God, once a year he'd go in there and he'd offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. Anybody else, any other time, any other way, they would be killed. But the high priest, once a year in a very elaborate procedure, very particular process at the set time, he could do this. Not just anyone in any way at any time can sashay into the presence of God. We need a priest to make a way for us to enter the presence of God. And this is what the priests symbolically did in the Old Testament through their offerings. But this is what Jesus has done in reality for us once and for all. He is superior because he does not have to offer the sacrifice for his own sin. He had none. He's superior because he doesn't have to offer the sacrifice repeatedly. His one sacrifice was for all time, for all people. And so the writer of Hebrews says, why go back to lesser priests when you can have the finished work of Jesus, the great high priest on your behalf? The one who is sinless, whose sacrifice is sufficient for all your sin, for all eternity. Jesus is the superior high priest on our behalf. He says he's made a better covenant. He's made a better way of relating to God, Jesus has. In chapter 8, 
writing about those former priests, he says, they serve at a sanctuary. That's a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. It's like a scale model. Okay. He built the tabernacle according to the heavenly reality. It was just a way of pointing towards it. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. The old temple and the old covenant were models, symbols of heavenly realities that they pointed to. But Jesus himself and the new covenant he brings, they are that reality. Not a symbol, not an anticipation. He's the real deal. He brings full and forever forgiveness of sins. He's superior to Moses and the old covenant he brought because Jesus brought final and full eternal redemption. Now we can enter into the presence of God because of Jesus. He is everything. As we've been reading through the whole Bible, He is what the whole Old Testament was pointing towards. The great high priest. So the first ten chapters show us the absolute supremacy of Christ over all others in the book of Hebrews. Above prophets, above angels, above Moses, above all other priests, above the old covenant, Jesus is supreme. And it mentions in this verse that he's a mediator of a superior covenant founded on better promises. And the rest of the book of Hebrews really picks up on that idea that Jesus has made amazing promises to us and that we should, by faith, trust that he will fulfill them. I'm going to skip over to about chapter 10, um, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. He says, Jesus is faithful to keep amazing promises that give us access to the most holy place where God is, a new and living way. We can draw near to God. We can be free from a guilty conscience because Jesus is is faithful to his promises. A little further down, it says, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And all of chapter 11 that follows is about faith, examples of people who trusted in the promises, the good, superior promises that come to us in Christ. And we are to follow their example. Even amidst great suffering, we learn. Chapter 12, we are urged to run the race after these great men and women of faith. 
to have faith in the supreme promises brought to us in Christ, to persevere because he's faithful. Hebrews chapter 12 says, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, that he talked about in chapter 11, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. There's that theme again. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Run the race. Believe that the promises are true persevere. And in these latter couple of chapters of the book of Hebrews, there are a number of exhortations that come to us along these lines. One is here. Throw off sin. Throw it off. Tear it off. Get rid of it. It will hinder your faith and cripple you in the race. And if you read through chapter 12 and 13 of the book of Hebrews, you find some of the sins pointed out that he's concerned about. Things like bitterness towards others, holding a grudge. Things like sexual immorality. Things like the love of money. And in chapter 13, contrariness with respect to church leaders. I am not making that up. It's in there. Chapter 13, get crossways with your church leaders and you might get knocked right out of the race. He's warning us. Um, Throw off sin. Get rid of it. The promises of Christ are true. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get distracted. Don't get ensnared. Throw off sin. There's this other exhortation here. Consider Christ. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us consider his example of suffering beyond belief and perseverance in that suffering. Be encouraged by that. Follow well. But not just as our example, but also as our source of help. If we go back to Hebrews 4, it says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In Christ, we find the help we need today in our time of need. He is there for us. We come to the throne by Him and through Him and to Him for the grace we need. We don't just tough it out on our own. Christ is there to bring us the help we need at the throne of grace. So he says, throw off your sin and consider Christ. Focus on Christ. Come to Christ every day for the help you need. 
And lastly, he exhorts us that we should do this together. You know, it's not coincidental that it says, let us fix our eyes. It's a together thing. We do this together, not in isolation. Chapter 10 says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Keep meeting together, he says. You need that. Encourage one another. It's vital to stay in the race. Back in chapter 3, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. How do we see to that? But, he says, encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Encouragement is the key to our persevering. Neglect relationships that encourage you and you run the risk of having a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, he's saying. Live the life outside of encouraging relationships in the body of Christ. For us, that means in this room. And you might be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Friends, the stakes are really, really high. Who in this room is encouraging you in your faith? Who in this room are you encouraging in their faith. It is absolutely essential. I had a conversation uh, not that long ago with an old friend's wife. She came by, we we had a conversation, ran into each other and um, caught me up on how their family's doing and how she's doing. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm still walking with the Lord. She said, but my husband is not. He now describes himself as a skeptic dear friend of mine who's a graduate of the seminary here in town served as a pastor in a local church is now a skeptic how does that happen many factors I'm sure but even from a distance as I've watched them over the years that they've been away from our community one of the contributing factors I have no doubt is that he was isolated from the encouragement of other believers It is essential that you are in encouraging relationships and that you are encouraging others in relationship. We have to stop trying to do church our way. It is too dangerous. There are far too many in this room who are resisting at your peril getting involved in encouraging relationships in this room with your church. And it is at your peril and it is at the peril of those whom you are supposed to be encouraging.
We cannot let anything cause us to drop out of the race or be hindered in the race of following Christ. Hebrews is so clear about this. It's littered with these sobering warnings all throughout. Here's a couple. Listen closely to these. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. He doesn't say it's, it's really hard. It's not very likely. He says it's impossible. Absolutely impossible. If they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Similarly, in chapter 10, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. We know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These severe, sobering warnings in Hebrews often put us back on our heels and they're difficult for us to fit precisely into our theological boxes that we've built. Um, But what is absolutely clear is this. You cling to your sin at your peril. At your peril. And it doesn't happen all at once. The writer of Hebrews tells us. In one of those warning passages back in chapter 2, he says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Drift a little this year, drift a little farther next year, drift still a little farther until we've drifted to a place and we never intended to go. Casting Crowns has resurrected a children's song. It puts it this way. It says, be careful little eyes what you see. It's the second glance that ties your hands as darkness pulls the strings. Be careful little feet where you go. For it's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. 
it's a slow fade. So this morning, are you drifting to a place, towards a place that you do not want to go? Is it a slow fade for you? Move the clock, move the calendar back a year. Which direction have you moved? Some of you should be deeply sobered by that answer. Together, together. Let's throw down our sin. Let's throw it down. And let's come to the place where we find grace in our time of need, where we find the help we need. See, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This morning, Christ, our helper, our Savior, is extending the invitation to you to draw near for this day. Find the help you need. Whatever help that is, whatever shape it takes for you, the writer of Hebrews is promising us That because Christ is so superior, he has made a place where we can find just the help we need. As the worship team comes to close us in worship, our great king, perhaps a good first step of obedience would be for you to simply humbly come forward and kneel if you're able down here at the front in prayer. Throw down your sin. Maybe you're just drifting a little. Maybe you're just at a flat spot. And draw near to Christ. So together, let's worship Him. Would you stand?